Hey, welcome to RushCast. My name's Jay Mantis. Thank you very much for listening to our show. We are really happy to have you here. I hope you like Rush. Um, today we're talking about Snakes and Arrows Live, one of my favorite live albums, and it's in the middle of our live album series. If you're just joining us for the first time, go back and check out uh, our episodes leading up to this one, which were all about the subsequent live albums up to this specific live album during the summer we did a album series and you can go listen to those we went and did a whole episode on each album in order it was a lot of fun glad to have you in though this should be a great episode unlike the rest of my episodes which were all totally toasted you'll really enjoy this one so first first order of business is to thank my guy Ruben Cantu Jr. who donated to the show this week. You guys should go check out his uh, check out his Twitter handle. Follow him on Twitter at redlenses underscore. Even a you know like I consider myself a big Rush fan. I do not have a Rush themed Twitter handle. So maybe maybe Ruben's like on a on a higher pedestal than I am. <laughs> I, I really missed out on an opportunity there. However, I didn't miss out on the password game. All I think all of my passwords, in case you're trying to hack into my stuff, is rush are, are rush themed. So at redlenses underscore, you can follow Ruben. Thank you, Ruben, so much. Uh, Ruben's helping out with the the costs to keep Rushcast running. The bandwidth that we need on our server requires money every every year. So uh, any donations are are greatly appreciated uh, i also had to purchase my own equipment in the last couple months so that's also helping me to pay those off as well thank you guys uh send us an email if you want to donate or if you just want to talk rushcast2112 at gmail.com next we're talking about snakes live today but last week we talked about r30 and i got a tweet from our guy dylan bano who says uh, uh, he said he was disappointed that and surprised that we didn't discuss the Tom Sawyer synth trigger going completely nuts during Roll the Bones on the R40 or the R30 DVD. And as soon as he said that, I remembered exactly what he was talking about. But it was something that I always thought was intentional for some reason. Like I, I knew as soon as as soon as he said it, we all know what the Tom Sawyer synth sounds like. We know what that part is, right? The big first note. Um, it, one of the I think it's the second chorus. You hear that going crazy through the the chorus of Roll the Bones, and in my head, especially since I had been a new fan when I was listening to R thirty, I just assumed it was an added synth part. And you know what? The 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 time where, or I should say, like the rhythmic placement of each of those synth moments are kind of on downbeats or just beats that they line up and i just thought oh they added more synth parts to roll the bones when they play it live that's cool um it never happened in the first chorus it probably never happens again i think it's safe to assume that was a tom sawyer trigger that was misfiring uh, good catch, Dylan. I don't, maybe maybe the rest of you caught that as well. I just always kind of chalked that up to, oh yeah, they wanted some like some synthy stuff here in the in the chorus, 
And you know what? Maybe it's the way I've just heard it all these years, but I, I think it fits. I think it sounds really cool like that. I wouldn't mind hearing that specific sound in that chorus every time I hear it. Maybe maybe placed a little bit more strategically. I don't know. Let me know. Send me an email. Tweet at me. Um, you can be like the rest of the world and send me uh, angry tweets. Then um, you'll be just like everybody. I'm just kidding. I don't get that many angry tweets, you guys. I'm not that bitter yet. All right, I want to bring in my buddy. Please welcome uh, the man I call correspondent Chad. How you doing, Chad Whitco? I'm doing good, Jay. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. I'm happy to have you back on the show, dude. I know you're a very busy guy, and uh, I called Chad my correspondent because he's, since the inception of Rush Rushcast, well, he's one of my best Rush friends. He's one of my best friends, period. Uh, we don't talk a ton because we're so busy, but when I started Rushcast, he would help me kind of fine-tune. He would call me and say, hey, just listen to your show, and I would say, did you like this part? Was this part weird? What can I do better? Uh, he's always been a, a big resource for me and this show, so I'm always happy to have him on. Um, Chad, you like Snakes and Arrows just like I do, don't you? Yeah, man. Um, Snakes and Arrows is kind of one of these seminal albums for me in Rush's catalog. And, you know, it's really great to be a part of this episode because just like you, um, I believe Snakes was your first tour, right? Right. Yep. 2007. Yeah. So Snakes was was my first tour. And um, I know you talk a lot about this this theory that, you know, the the album that's out, you know, just released and we get into it, it's kind of like, you know, your favorite album. Um, I I have a few kind of key moments for me from Rush. I grew up listening to um, vinyls with my father, and he had moving pictures, so I heard that young as a kid, and I always was just kind of like Tom Sawyer I thought of Rush, you know, for probably the first, you know, 15, 18 years of my life. And then I bought... uh, one of their chronicles, you know, one of their, their kind of like compilation. And, you know, I got into some of their other stuff and, and Working Man and some of their other radio hits. And, and that was kind of another key moment for me. Um, and then a few years later, I got Rio. And that was really this kind of big moment in, in, in my Rush uh, my rush fandom, I guess. And just like you, you know, I, I bought the Rio DVD and watched it, and it just really cemented my, my love for the band. And of course, the next opportunity there was to 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 buy anything for Rush or to see Rush with Snakes and Arrows. So, seeing Snakes, it's a, it's a huge part of my my Rush career, I guess, as a fan. I noticed last week that R thirty looked old to me. I don't. I always considered everything from Rio on to be newer material and be like this modern, uh, this modern characterization of rush media however last week i realized this looks old man it's an old looking film um that's not that's those aren't the perfect words for that but but uh this one is a, a step closer obviously it's a newer record but it doesn't look quite as dated to me yet it feels very like late 2000s 2007 8 but it doesn't look like an old album to me um, quite yet. Maybe it will in five years. How about for you? Well, it's been actually a little while since I've seen the, the live DVD. Um, 
know, it's back in, I live in New Hampshire now, and it's back in New York, and my folks played a couple weeks ago. And, of course, I have the, the DVD for it, and I just forgot to grab it. I was home, I was like, oh, i got to grab this, and I totally forgot. Um, but looking at the visuals from what I remember, um, I remember feeling it didn't have, it didn't have that kind of antiquated look to the, the filmography. Um, I feel like R30, for some reason, it even, I don't know if you touched upon this, but it feels older in its appearance compared to uh, Rio even at times. So I don't know if that was just a production thing or, or what, but um, I think Snakes has held up better, you know, from what I remember at least uh, compared to R30. It could, um, it could be the nostalgia talking, but don't you think the setup visually, and I know you remember what the stage looked like, was one of the most unique looks that they've had? And maybe it's because it was the first time I ever saw the stage with my own eyes. But the hen house, the rotisserie chickens, the dinosaurs all over Alex's amps, the Barbie dolls in front of his pedals, the bright red kit. That, that is just the most, I, I almost said iconic and that's totally not what I mean. I don't think it's an iconic look. I think it's one of the most unique, mo- most eccentric looks that they've had on stage. Yeah, I agree. And I think... You know, I, I've appreciated the looks of the stage, you know, that they've had over the last few years, last few tours. Um, on Getty's side, I think, you know, it kind of like got a little out of hand even with like the, the popcorn machine, the giant brain and all that. Um, I think that the aesthetic of the hen house was just, it was just really offbeat and it was kind of like the, you know, the dryers and it was just like, Oh my God, like, what is this? You know, why is there rotisserie chickens on stage? And uh, I think it was just the the best look that they had kind of combined some of their more classic looks with some of their quirkiness. I think you know, I love rush for the quirkiness, but I think some of their quirkiness was a little too much on, um, on the last tour. Uh, I appreciated the steampunk aesthetic that they had on time machine, but, uh, some of the stuff is just a little too much. I, I appreciated the look, you know, what you said. It's very unique. And uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't think saying it's iconic is really too far off course. I think it's it's a pretty iconic look for their, their setup. That's also kind of when they took off in terms of pop culture media. It would, you know, we had, um, we had the Colbert Report show was during this tour. And you'll remember they had all of the different uh, they had the Snakes and Arrows kit during that performance. Getty had, um, what am I forgetting? Uh, he didn't have the hen houses, but he had, um, Alex had like a chicken leg or something, like a like a stuffed animal on his amp. And like, obviously chicken, for some reason, is a big theme on this tour. Uh, this was just before the Beyond the Lighted Stage movie. This is just before... Uh, I love you, man. Now I'm trying to remember. Was I love you, man? When they filmed that, yes, it was. I in the film, I love you, man. When they're at the concert, I remember distinctly. It was that bright orange Les Paul custom, like the Alex Lifeson model or whatever. The uh, what do you call it? The like the concept version, the concept model of that guitar that he was using in that movie, which he used exclusively on Snakes Live, and yeah. uh, the Hen Houses, I believe, were there, and they op- and they played Limelight, which was their opener for the set. So I think that I think that has something to do with it. It's more recognizable that set. 
because they were kind of beginning be, they were kind of beginning this like mainstream sort of push in a way. Yeah, it's interesting because I, you know, in, in preparing for today's episode, I was just taking a few minutes on the web and just looking around and seeing what information I could find. And uh, according to Wikipedia, they're saying the Snake Store um, was uh, Russia's most successful tour. I think it grossed 65 or $68 million. They had three legs, 100, 114 shows. I mean, that's really huge, you know, and, and why was that? so successful back then compared to, you know, our 40 or clockwork or time machine, you know? Yeah. So it was at a really, I think they're really at a, a great moment with their career in a sense. I think snakes coming out was a really great album for them. And, uh, I think they marketed themselves really well and they had that pop culture thing just kind of really starting to, to, to come out. So, I think, you know, it was a beautiful tour for that. Um, I want to move back to the stage setup for two seconds. Um, when we, this was my, me and my brother and my dad, it was our first time seeing Rush. Well, it actually wasn't my dad's first time, but it was his first time seeing Rush as like a big mega fan like he is right now. And we saw these three huge like um, projection screens behind the band. And we were like, oh, well, that's cool. There's three of them. You know, it was mostly, I think, Alex was up on the left, Getty was on the right, Neil was in the middle. And then at times they would invert it. Getty would be on the left, Alex would be on the right. Sometimes Neil would be on the outsides. Sometimes all three would be used as one big screen, like three mm-hmm. screens uh, combined. Um, the the combinations and the different things they were doing with those screens was was perfect in my opinion, and we just assumed that's what they always do. And in the coming tours, we learned we were like, where are those big three screens? I think on Clockwork, it was one screen in the middle with these like strips that got progressively shorter on the sides of it, strips of screen, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, and they also had those moving TV things, those light fixtures. Uh, it's been different on every tour. I just love the very simple three equally sized sized screens behind the band. I don't know about you. Yeah, I think it's a good representation of the band. You know, so I realized over the years that as far as like rock music goes, my favorite bands really tend to be three piece bands. I'm a big Rush fan, three guys. I'm a big Cream fan, three guys. I'm a big Primus fan, three guys. And um, I think it really creates for a great working dynamic and it can make the music more interesting because, you know, all three guys got to have their act together in order to make, you know, good music. And, uh, yeah, I don't look at Rush and really think of one member more than the other. You know, there's other bands, you know, you think of like one or two guys, but with Rush, like for me and probably most Rush fans, every member is kind of a critical, you know, component. So, um, I think having the, the screens weighted equally like that, you know, it's really represented them and their music. And I mean, I don't know. I, th- I think just nostalgic wise, I mean, I think I appreciate those aesthetics as much, you know, that let alone for all the reasons that we've described. You know, there was, before we get into the tracks, there's one last thing I wanted to point out. And that's this black shirt that Getty's wearing on the video on this album and it says blah 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 and i know you know what shirt i'm talking about 
because oh, it's interesting kind of foreshadowing right uh, for for alex's speech and it's it's very um i'm fascinated by this blah 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 was sort of getty's catchphrase he he didn't really say it ever but because he wore that shirt so often whenever there was like any kind of cartoon or illustration of the band his shirt said blah 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 you know what i'm saying (laughs) and and alex stole it alex totally stole it um well let's get into the tracks here what's um i'll 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 kick it off with uh with limelight there's that small tweak in limelight other than that i don't think it's a drastically different song than we usually hear it or performance i mean but that big extended note at the beginning is kind of a nice touch a, a nice intro to a concert is for him to come out with the the riff that and the lick that everybody knows but then extend it out and kind of look around, wait for the rest of the band to get on stage. And if I remember correctly, Chad, at our show in upstate New York, he didn't extend that note like that. I think he he did, but maybe not as long as it is on the um, on the recording, you know, from uh, the Netherlands for the DVD and the, the CD. Um, I do remember it being held out a little bit. I don't know if it was that long, though. Uh-huh. But, you know, regardless, I mean, what they did on the DVD – um, whether I was done on all tour, you know, stops on the tour, I think it's a really cool start to a show. You know, it gets the crowd really pumped because it's the, this recognition of like, we're kicking into this, you know, and we're going to take you guys on, on a ride with us. And like, here we go. And it allows the crowd to kind of like pump up a little bit and like throw their energy back to the band, you know, during that extended, you know, chord that he's holding out. Um, I noticed too, um, you know, it's been a while since I've listened to Limelight for the studio cut. Uh, that song sounds, aside from the, you know, the, the held out note, it sounds a little slower in tempo to me than some of the other recordings I've heard. Yeah. Um, but to me, like, it's a really cool tempo for that song. It's very, like, very deliberate. And um, I, I think it's a really great song to, to start a concert. Uh, I always kind of think of Limelight and Free Will as as being equally important in a live set. Um, I think they're they're very similar songs in terms of Rush's fame. You know what I mean? In terms of their most famous songs, those are very equal to me. And the performance on this record, I think, is another great example of Getty's, uh, a younger Getty's ability to sing really well still. Mm-hmm. And for, also for just one. the different, the I mean, we talk about this on every episode, but I think this is the height. In fact, this is the the absolute climax for Getty, uh, in my opinion, and maybe even Alex, in terms of their individual tones. So we've got what I consider to be the best Rush sound between those two guys on um, a song that is, is pretty heavy to begin with. Right. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, we, we talked, you and I talked about this, you know, ad nauseum in, in private conversations about the tone on Snakes Live, and uh, I think it's just, it's just right on point. You know, it's, it's, I think it's a little like forgetty. It's a little dialed back from the, uh, the punchiness on Rio. Like it's there still in the mix, but it's not so, it's just not so like, I don't know, like twangy or like, you know, just growly. Like it's got the growl, but it's not just so over the top. And I think Alex is brought into the mix good. And I think it's a really great, great, uh, great sound for the band. When I when I started watching Larger Bowl, 
this week. I thought, I'm shocked, and I was shocked back then that they played this live. I had an I had a feeling they were going to play a lot of Snake's materials on the tour, and I was right about that, but I didn't think Larger Bowl would have been one of them. And as I started listening, I went, oh yeah, man, I can't believe they played this still. And immediately thought, I don't know if they should have. Like, is this going to work? Who wanted to do this, right? And as you watch, it's really interesting to watch Neil's face during the larger bowl. Neil seems like he is the one enjoying that song the most. Neil looks like he has a very strong emotional attachment or connection to that song. Not to say he doesn't have emotional attachments about all to all his songs, but it seems like that one kind of hits him somehow differently yeah. than the rest of them. And, you know, as the song kicks, as the song proceeds, you really do learn, like a lot of songs, like a Losing It or maybe a Witch Hunt, you realize, oh, man, this thing actually is a beast live. This This is a real good song. It just takes a little bit of time to warm up in terms of being super high energy because not high energy out of the gate. Right, definitely not. But especially after that that beautiful solo, um, then you have all these beautiful vocal layers, Alex contributing um, with his vocals. I think it's a great song live. It just takes a little bit, time, little bit of time to warm up. Yeah, it's funny. That's a funny song for me because when the album first came out, I, I really dug it. I, I was really into that song. I was to actually quite a bit you know, compared to some of the other tracks. And then it kind of fell out of favor for me, and I liked it, but it would start up, you know, on the on the CD or you know my iPod or something, and I would kind of skip it. And I think it was just kind of like the intro, like the the vibe or the feel of it. And I was just like, oh, I don't know if I can go through this again. Like, go to something else. And hearing it live on you know the live recording, I just was immediately like, wow, like this track, you know, it's got so much substance to it that. I was probably first attracted to, but dismissed later on because there's elements in the beginning that, you know, I felt were a little weak, but live, I mean, it's a killing tune and the guitar, the guitar work and the solo is really fantastic. And, um, it's interesting that it's placed on that song, you know, like it's just really, really well done. And, um, I think that's like one of my favorite things about listening to these live tours going back, you know, it's not hearing how, Tom Sawyer has changed over the years or, or whatever. It's hearing the songs live, like right after they were just creative. And, and the band, you know, they're, I mean, Snakes and Arrows, when they recorded it, they, they spent months writing these songs. So it was as much of a part of them as anything else. So they really lived these songs to have them performing it. You can, you just feel the energy coming out um, so much more than, you know, some of their other albums where the songs are probably, you know, created in, you know, a couple sessions or, you know, recorded in a week. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think I think it's great, too. You look at the first set, right? The first set of this tour or this album. You got 11 tracks. For someone like you, me, or anyone listening who's a hardcore fan and wants deep cuts, or, or at least enjoys deep cuts, um, you got to put up with Limelight. You got to put up with Free Will. And then it's nine tracks that i could pretty much label as deep cuts at least seven without a doubt are deep cuts Mm -hmm. um and now as we look at them they're almost 10 years old 
we look i look at them and go all right well the new material isn't new new anymore and if they were to play a show today i wouldn't complain about this first set at all limelight okay digital man entrepreneur mission and then we get free will the main monkey business would love to hear the main monkey business again i didn't get to hear it on the r40 show i don't think i think they alternated that one the the larger bowl i could be wrong about main monkey business did we hear that chad well, I saw two different sets on that tour, so I can't remember. Okay. I can't remember. I did. I saw it for sure, but I can't remember if you and I heard it. Secret Touch, Circumstances, Between the Wheels, and then Dreamline. I, I wouldn't complain about any of those. And and just enough to open up with a big, a big gun, throw another one in there to change it up with free will. Um, this is, I think... In recent memory, this is one of the, if not the juiciest set I've ever seen this band concoct. Um, to hear Digital Man, Entrenew, Emission back to back to back, that is always one of the sweetest spots in the lineup. Is like the two, three, four area. Um, mm-hmm. It's always a place we're going to hear something good. Uh, I don't know how anyone could hate Digital Man, including um, producers. I don't know how anyone could hate that track. I love the fact that they changed the arrangement. They they tease you like they're going to go into the chorus where you know the chorus is supposed to go. Then they go back into a verse. And then when we get the chorus, it's this big moment. It's a fantastic arrangement. It's executed perfectly, and it benefits so much from a bigger, thicker, wetter sound than we got on Signals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, those, those first... Um... Well, I guess not the first three, taking Limelight out, but, you know, those three tracks, uh, you know, I wrote some notes down for the show, and, you know, I have a big bracket around those three songs. Like, just, like, look at these three songs, like, right in an order, you know what I mean? And, you know, I think going back to the, the show, you know, I was still learning stuff about Rush, and I didn't know uh, Digital Man, really. I know I've heard it on Signals, but I didn't know it that well. I didn't really know Entree knew that well. And Mission, I didn't really know that well. So those three songs, I was just like, oh, you know, what are these? And it's just a killing, you know, back-to-back-to-back series of songs. Um, I think, you know, it's it, it's a little quiet compared to some of their songs that they might throw in those slots. So I have to wonder back in the day, you know, if you had some, like, hardcore Rush fans and just, like, you know, stuff from the 70s, you know, they were probably like, oh, my God, what is this? But, you know, I mean, for me, Digital Man is great. It's a great performance of it. Um, I like the sound quality, like you said, a lot better than Signals. Uh, Entree New, really interesting songs thrown into the mix. And and I think that version of Mission is probably the best version I've ever heard. Oh, I agree. Now, you know, it's funny because I was a new fan as well. I remember having a similar thought with Entree New when they started playing that. I remember this big old guy in a lawn chair behind us when my, my dad and I were writing down the set list, we couldn't remember what the name of it was. We hadn't heard the, heard the track enough to remember the name. And we, I remember we wrote down, um, I think we wrote down the spaces in between or just between us or one of those um, to remember what it was. And the, we were like, what is it? And the guy, that guy behind us said, it's the French one. <laughs> he didn't know what it was either. He just knew it was French. Um, but a, again, a great, recording of that song such a rare opportunity to hear it live and then mission that's my dad's favorite song we were we were essentially brand new 
uh, hardcore fans. And I remember going to our show and him saying, I just want to hear Mission. And an older fan, or if I could time travel, I would go back and laugh in his face. Right? Yeah. There's no way you're going to hear Mission. That's a shot in the dark. Right? Uh, And when he heard it, I've never seen him jump so high in my life. He was so pumped. That's Uh, awesome. And uh, but these three tracks, like we had no idea, Chad. We had no idea how rare those were to hear. Yeah, and then we, we get no circumstances idea. later on. It's like we we didn't even know. We, we were just like, oh, these are cool songs. But people who were as big of fans as we are now at the time must have been losing it. No pun yeah. intended. <laughs> yeah, I remember when circumstances was played. You know, Getty made a comment to the crowd about um, playing the song off off hemispheres that they hadn't played in a long time. And, um, you know, like I was just like, okay, I don't know, you know, the, the sets that well. So which one is it? And they played circumstances and like, you know, the least known song for me on that album. And I just remember listening to it and being like, Oh, this is such a cool tune. You know, cause it's, it was just, it was very proggy and, and it's time signatures and everything. And, um, yeah, I mean, just to, to have seen that even down tuned the way it was down tuned, I think it, it worked really well. Oh, yeah. Um, the the detuning really helped uh, the heaviness of that song. It became a lot more metal in that moment with a little oh, bit of a sure. lower. I mean, and all those songs, except for the trees, I think every. Well, no, I shouldn't say all. Two of the four cool. tracks on Hemispheres are downtuned now. And it, I think they're both benefited from that. Right. You know, um, you, you mentioned Free Will. Uh, a few times already. I think Free Will was like the perfect song for that slot. You know, if they're going to throw in a radio hit. And I'm so glad they did because I think Free Will is their best song that's on the radio that combines like the elements of being radio friendly. Yeah, the, the having, elements that Spirit of Radio does well, right? Right. But but also having that prog kind of backing, you know? The circumstance, what the. <laughs> The things circumstances are made of were like injected into Spirit of Radio, and we get free will. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I, I, I'm just thankful I was able to hear Free Will on that tour and hear Getty. You know, I think he did a great job of you know hitting the high note out of the instrumental break, and um, I'm just happy I saw. It. I don't know if they've played it on tours since. Did they play it on Time Machine? Oh yeah, they've they've played it since. I remember thinking it was weird that I think on Clockwork it was left out, and that was like, it was weird right. that it wasn't there. But I know they've played yeah. it since. Yeah, so I was I was stoked to hear that. And, you know, as I mentioned at the, the top of the episode, um, I was a big Rio fan, right? So I didn't know the material that well for uh, Vapor Trails. I, I looked into it, and I found out what the songs were and, and got the album. And to hear Secret Touch, I mean, what a beastly song, you know, to throw in that first set. And, you know, we think about Getty's bass tone, and um, I just laugh every time at the end of that song when Getty is just, like, hammering on that one note. The song's done, and he's just, like, hammering on his bass, like this one note over and over and over again. Uh, And it's just that really growly bass tone, and it's just such a cool song to throw in there and you know um, it's the, that that song has yet to miss a tour that song since it has existed has not been left off of a tour right what's it aren't r40 man r30 r40 no no i mean at this point in time 
at this point in time. Right. Oh, so it, sure. it got onto yeah. Rio. It got, on, or I should say, Vapor Trails, and it got out into R30, and now here it is on Snakes. And it yeah, might even and be. I'm, I'm getting bad with my set list. I used to be really good. It might even be on Time Machine, but I won't say that for sure. Um, we should mention while we're talking about those juicy, juicy slots at two and three that um, on the 2008 leg of the tour. It's unfortunate that Andre New got that got rotated out, but we get to hear another like I would say an equally deep cut in Ghost of a Chance. Um, uh-huh. I remember it, it was a really weird thing for me. I didn't know how tours worked when I was whatever in, in 2008, however old I was, um, and I was expecting a brand new set list from Rush. And we were up in the balcony, and I was talking with my dad. He's going, I don't know, man. It might. It's it's still the Snakes and Arrows tour. I'm like, yeah, but they had a break. They'll have brand new songs. When they came out with Limelight, and then they open and then followed it with Digital Man. I was a very sad person because <laughs> I realized I was about to get the yeah. same concert. But when I I heard the third track, I thought, oh, well, we might get some new stuff, and that was correct. However, just like with Andre New a year earlier, I had no idea what Ghost of a Chance was. That was a track right. I was not familiar with. Um, it, I, uh, man, I'm getting all worked up over Ghost of a Chance. Um, I did know what it was. It was a track I skipped every time I got to it. I don't know if I'd ever gotten through it once. I just did not like the intro. And I skipped it. But being forced to hear it live really opened my eyes to that song, and I fell in love with it. I'm yeah, sorry. I mean... For me, that song, I didn't know it when I heard it, but I fell in love with it instantly. It was like, oh my God, like I need to go home and, you know, look up on whatever digital, you know, downloading device I was using at the time. And I was like, I need to download this, you know, at a ridiculously slow rate so I can hear the song tomorrow. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it was it was a really cool tune to hear. And of course, you know, I went through the same experience. You know, I've seen bands before and I followed some bands on their tours, like online and you know, I think Rush is really different compared to other bands. Like they don't switch out their, their, um, you know, their, their their sets. Obviously, the way other bands do. And I've seen Pearl Jam a few times on one tour before, and both nights were different. Um, so yeah, going into it, I was like, oh man, like I feel jipped. Like it's the same songs. Like I want to hear more songs. So to hear uh, another deep cut like that was was really sweet and all the other songs that they switched out too, you know, they're really great tunes that, that came into the set. So I certainly didn't complain about what they put in there. Um, but yeah, Ghost of a Chance was a, was a killer tune and it really fits into that slot so well. Um, I, I'll always talk about Dreamline. It's played on every tour virtually. Um, you would think I'd just stop talking, you know, I would have nothing to say about it. There is always something to say with this track. It's different every time. Um, this is one of my, I've I've said this in the last two episodes. This is one of my favorite recordings of it. Yeah, well they keep getting better. Um, all leading up to the peak on Clockwork Angels when we get it with the string ensemble, which is in my opinion the best that'll ever sound. Uh, this recording is has a solo that is just dripping in delay, and the delay he he creates it creates this very ambient sound before the 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 second half of the solo which we all know um that i really enjoy i also love the way getty yells oh yeah yeah <laughs> or something right before the solo that's a nice touch and i think he's brought that back since 
I mean, I don't remember a lot of the details of that part of that song, but uh, I remember seeing it, you know, live and just feeling so happy that I saw it. Because it was a song that I fell in love with for the band, but I never considered it a radio hit. I don't even know if I've even heard it on the radio more than half a dozen times up until that point, you know? Uh, so I've never it was, heard it on the radio. Well, yeah, I've heard it a few times. and But to hear it... Um, but to hear it live, you know, for the first time, you know, that's that was what was so great about seeing this tour. Obviously, it's my first show, so all these songs was just like, you know, the best experience for that song because it was just, you know, it was just perfect. But in re-listening to it, you know, I agree, man. Like, it's a really sweet performance, and uh, Alex did a wonderful job in the solo, and I think it was, you know, I think Snakes in a lot of ways was this this start of a crescendo for them, you know, and it, it's, I think some things hit their peak at different points along the way for some of these performances, but, you know, I think Snakes was really where they're just, they're feeling it, man. If you, if you look at the, the video and listen to it, you can just hear how confident they are in everything they're doing. Um, I mean, they've always had confidence, but there's just something special about that, that tour, I think, where, you know, they, I think they felt like, yeah, I mean, we're back and, you know, and they've, I think the numbers, as I said, for the sales, you know, I think it shows. And I think people, I remember like seeing that show and then talking to people later on and people are like, oh yeah, I heard, I heard that show was a really great, you know, yeah. great performance. So yeah, um, yeah it, was a, it was a hype for them for sure. Do you remember, I wonder if you remember specifically what was unique about this performance of Driven visually? Of Dreamline? Uh yeah, what did I say? Driven. Yeah. Yeah, of Dreamline. Boy, I don't even remember the visuals of it to be honest with you. My dad and I were looking through binoculars before the show started. We couldn't figure out what these white squares were that were like all over the stage. They were like they looked like they taped these white squares to the floor. And then we realized during Driven or not Driven, I keep saying Driven. Uh, on Dreamline, they use those green lasers, right? And it sort of yeah. became like Dreamline's thing with these lasers were hitting, they weren't paper, it was mirrors that were, they were mirrors that were taped to the ground. Right, right, um, right. They, we, we've been missing the lasers in the last few tours, I think, but uh, I, I miss them. I like them on Dreamline. I think it's a great, tr- a great track to do that with. Right. Yeah, now that you mentioned, I do remember those. Um, I do know that on Jacob's Ladder for R40, they had a really sweet use of lasers. Oh, yes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, lasers are one of those things. You know, you use it in, a good, like, a good tune uh, where it's well-placed. You know, it really just heightens the song. If you use them every song, you know, for me, it's a, it's a dated visual. But, uh, yeah, I remember that now. I'm not to say that for sure. On to the second set. We get Far Cry. Uh, for a long time, I thought it was a great track to open a set with until I heard it end a set on, I think, uh, Clockwork Angels. I believe they ended the last set with Far Cry. And I thought, wow, this is, number one, it's a great track to end with, but two, it's also interesting that it already feels like a nostalgia song. It already feels like Far Cry has paid its dues and it's no longer a new track. Like, we were all kind of excited. We were all kind of happy to hear Far Cry on that tour, weren't we? Oh, yeah. I mean, that was Far Cry. I remember before the album came out, you know, I think they had 
uh, Far Cry on um, on their website or something. There's a place where you can hear the song before it was released. Yeah. And you, I think it was a website you go there and they had the visual of the, the stroller on the on the pier or whatever, you know. And uh, yeah, I mean to hear that for me, like that was out of a new album. It's like that's the that's the rocker, you know. And, yeah, I mean. Um, for you and I, it was the first new Rush material we had ever heard. And I remember that hearing that intro on the studio recording, it was like, yes, this is what I would expect new Rush to sound like, and this is exactly what I want new Rush to sound like. Right. That's a perfect way of saying it. And, you know, it's one of those songs that, you know, I, I loved it live then. I still love it live. Sometimes I, I wish it would be swapped out for something else. But even on R40, you know, when I went to the R40 show, not the one you went to, but I went to the other one. You know, I went with my wife, and you know, Snakes and Arrows is is one of the albums that when we first started dating, and she was introduced to the band, I gave her a Snakes and Arrows album because of how important it was to me. And you know, I think she would get like two or three songs into the album every time she drove somewhere because most places are like twenty minutes away, and uh, so you know, she just fell in love with Far Cry. So when Far Cry started on R forty, you know, she was just like beside herself about it and in that moment i was like you know this is just such a great song like i don't care that i've heard it every tour since snakes you know it's just it's a really it's an awesome tune and what's amazing too like you know think about it, is the versatility of it you know set openers set closers and and you know back then it was a killing like new tune like people loved it it's like like you said this is a new song like you love this song like this is what you want rush to sound like and then you know, fast forward 10 years and you go to R40 and people are singing along with Far Cry like it's free will, you know? I mean, you know, it reminds me of Secret Touch in that I, in the same way, I don't think it missed a placement on the subsequent three tours after it was created, right? I think it was, it, it opened this set. I be- it ended the second set on Clockwork, and in between those two tours is Time Machine, and I believe it sits in the middle of one of the sets on Time Machine. So yeah, in the same way, it was like a brand new song that we all loved. It was what I call a, a song that is captures the essence of the heart of Rush, mm-hmm. uh, Far Cry and, and Secret Touch, and uh, a song that they would not let go of for a long time. Can I can I be a little bit critical of Far Cry? Yeah, your show, buddy. You can do no. what you want. <laughs> um, it's when I hear Far Cry live, and it's only because the studio cut is so good. It's those first few notes. Um, uh, they're sitting on that big E chord. Da 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 Right. Yeah. That's uh. There's an acoustic guitar playing straight eighth notes behind it, and then the bass drums and electric guitar are playing those rhythms however when we hear it live alex plays the simulated acoustic guitar part and doesn't play the electric part is just nowhere to be found and all we get is the bass and it feels completely empty to me somebody please email me and tell me you know or you felt the same way I, I want the electric guitar part in that opening. It's the only thing missing from that track when it's played live. No, I've never, I never, I totally feel it. Like I can feel it now listening back on it in my head, but I never thought about it uh, in the context. And I wonder why they didn't have him playing that heavy kind of syncopation with the rest of the band with 
you know, an acoustic trigger behind it. Or exactly. Like yeah, it'd be way easier to just trigger the acoustic part and play the electric part, other than rather than the other way around. But they did, they played it the other way around, but left out the electric trigger. Ah, I don't know. I, I'm over it. I'm not that <laughs> as angry as I sound. So here we get a bunch. A bunch of uh, new new tracks, a bunch of Snakes material. And again, very predictable set list. We knew these slots were reserved for the new material coming out of the of the break. And um, uh, one thing that I'm just re- remembering now, one thing that always irked me was that it goes Far Cry, Working Them Angels, Armor and Sword, when mm-hmm. the, the actual album goes Far Cry, Armor and Sword, Working Them Angels. I don't understand the rationale behind that decision but uh either way we get to hear him working them angels a song that has returned in the future right in coming albums coming live mm-hmm. performances uh tells you that they really like it but you hear it live and you go man this thing works this this is a song that like was built like most of snakes and arrows built for a live setting yeah for sure um, I really dig the uh, the album artwork for or sort of the when you open up the DVD set you see the uh, the guy with the angel's wings and the wrench and the snakes and arrows tattoo and that kind of appears in the background of the mm-hmm. song as that one's being performed that's always a nice touch yeah yeah I mean it's a song I think it's just it really there's a lot of songs I think of snakes that work I mean as an album studio recordings are great. Um, one of my favorite things um, that I own for Rush is there's a, a behind-the-scenes documentary of them recording Snakes and Arrows up in um, Catskill Mountains in New York, uh, not far from where, I, where I'm from. And um, So, you know, seeing the studio work, and the songs work so well in the studio, but a lot of the songs, just I think, get elevated. It's a new place live. Um, I think Angels, for sure, is one of them. Uh, I mean, really, I mean, any of these next songs, from that album that they play live, I think uh, just are so much better. And honestly, after angels, you know, the next few songs, it's a real shame that these songs haven't really made it back into the set list, you know, armor and sword spin drift, um, you know, the way the wind blows and all that. I mean, these are really, really driving tracks and it's, a, it's unfortunate. We only heard of them once for the most part. You've always been so. You've always said to me, they will perform. They will have performed every track on Snakes and Arrows live by the end of their career. You still, you still sticking to that? Uh, I probably have to take that back at this point. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, but I get, I get what you're saying. You know, most yeah, of them I, were performed, and it's for a reason. Right. Yeah. Um. I think I still think there's a few good tracks that uh, you know that I think all the tracks that that haven't been played yet could be played live and and be done justice. Um, I think it was great on Time Machine that they brought Faithless in. It, it, you know, it was that was a track that I think they probably felt like you know we omitted it from from the first you know tour could have been on probably because we need to throw more radio hits or other songs on, um, so we're going to bring it back. But I mean. I don't know about you, but is there anything out of Armoring Swords, Spindrift, or, or Wind that you, like, 
you would not want to hear lies? I mean, would you be happy if those were on the next tours in some way? Those three you just listed? Yeah. I, I would I would be in love to hear those lives, specifically Spindrift. Um, I, my notes for Spindrift were made for live. Like, you hear this one on Snakes and Arrows Live, and you go, this is just, it's metal, man. <laughs> it's a heavy track, and it, it it's made to be... Uh, it's it's a headbanger in a sense, right? It's mm-hmm. really straightforward. It's got a nice contrast between the lighter, more ambient parts and the heavy part. We get to hear the ending that we actually do here on the studio cut, despite the fade out. One of my biggest pet peeves. This track fades out. However, we still hear the actual ending of the song. Um, the ending of the song is fantastic. We get to hear it without the fade out on this one. I I insisted we were gonna hear spin drift on our forty. I was dead wrong. Um, the way the wind blows is one of the track that took me the longest to get into when we're talking about the studio cut. However, I wrote down the contrast of this song works live so so nicely. It's yeah. it starts out with that Stevie Ray kind of um kind of vibe. Uh, did I just say Stevie Ray? You did say Stevie Ray. Yvonne. <laughs> uh, anyway, um. I don't know. So it, it, I think it works. It's a long song. It takes up a lot of time. I've always kind of, I've always kind of suggested maybe the intro is just a touch too long on that song. It takes a while to get going, but it would be a fan favorite if it returned. Is what I wrote down before you even mentioned that, Chad. If they were to play that again, people would go nuts. I think. It is. I mean, those two songs. Um, and I love Almond Sword. Uh, I remember when Almond Sword. Like or Snakes, the album first came out. You know, I was really into Armor and Sword. I remember I used to go to a bunch of open mics at the time, and I was like, you know what? I am tired of hearing this sappy singer-songwriter stuff. So, I, you know, I play bass, so I was like, I'm going to play some Rush, but I can't just play it by myself. So I brought along like a CD player, you know, and plugged it into the speakers, and I played Armor and Sword for the people. And uh, I remember it's just, I loved the tune so much at the time, I just had to share it with other people. Um, Probably nobody cared, but you know, I had a blast. But, you know, Spindrift, I mean, like you said, it's a rocker. It's got those soaring guitars and everything. And, you know, the way the wind blows, I mean, it is a driving tune. I mean, it has got some, you know, it's got some oomph behind it when it gets going, you know. And I, I would love to hear it live. I think it works, it works really well. I think it's another one of those tunes that just work better live than even on on the album. What always drove me crazy about this re- crazy about this recording though is he says the snakes and arrows a child's there too are enough to yield a thousand cu- <laughs> he cuts off the word cuts and it drives me insane. I'm like why didn't he finish the line? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're like, yeah, that stuff doesn't bother me. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> I'm not like you, Jay. <laughs> uh I wish he had finished that line. Anyway, um, you know, we talked about how juicy the first set is. We get a bigger, a much bigger set on set two. However, we've always kind of labeled, or at least I have, set two of the Snakes and Arrows tour as being this like huge exercise in new Rush material, where we just they just played the album, the brand new album front to back. A lot of people do didn't and do not still like Snakes and Arrows as an album. Um, and we're disappointed with how heavy it was. 
on set two. I don't think that's true. I mean, let's look at it. We How many songs did we just talk about that were new? We had Far Cry. People like Far Cry. I'm not going to listen to you if you tell me you don't enjoy that song. Um, the rest, I'll, I'll listen, but you're wrong. Work in the Angels, Armor and Sword, Spindrift, The Way the Wind Blows. That's four tracks you got to sit through if you don't like Snakes and Arrows. Then, oh my gosh, you get Subdivisions, Natural Science, Witch Hunt, a huge drum solo, um, Hope, real quick, right? Distant Early Warning, Spirit of Radio, Tom Sawyer to end the set. That is like, if you're into the hits or the old stuff, that is a gift. So I'm not going to label this set anymore as being just Snakes and Arrows. Right. Yeah, I, I used to look back on it, you know, probably closer to the time of the show, and, and my memory was like, oh, my God, there's so many Snake songs on that second set. Um, but, you know, there's a couple Snake songs in the first set, and you get four or five in a row. You get, um, and then you said you get subdivisions, huge crowd pleaser. Uh, you get Natural Science, Beastly Song, you know, how they recorded it. I remember hearing chanting in the background, almost like YYZ in Rio yeah. uh, on, on this cut. Um, Witch Hunt, which is a stellar performance. And you get Malignant Narcissism right before the drum solo. Uh, that's two minutes of more Snakes material. And it's a cool, it's a cool-ass instrumental. And then Neil's drum solo I think was, you know, one of the best in recent years on that tour. Um, and like you said, I mean, you get hope, you know, it's, that's becoming a, a staple now for Alex in a way, this kind of acoustic instrumental into another track. And yeah, distant early warning, um, spirit of radio, Tom Sawyer, you know, it's, 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 it's killer. Um, and they're, they're all no frills versions of those songs. They're not messing around. They're not, you know, there's no, there's not, they're not going, let's play Spirit or, uh, or I should say, um, they're not playing Tom Sawyer as a reggae or something weird. <laughs> they're, it, they're just really, really crisp recordings of those songs. You, you know, looking back on the set list, I was looking online. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think when we saw it for Snakes 2007, I think it got swapped out later. But I think when we saw it in Saratoga, Distant Early Warning might have been Summertime Blues. Um, I, I don't remember hearing that. We, I mean, we could do some research and find out. Uh, but we should mention the trees, Red Barchetta and 2112 were swapped in. I don't remember where. Uh, to yeah, be honest, I I'm not interested in where. Uh, like That's why I didn't look it up to begin with. I, don't, I, I like the fact that they were played. I'm not really interested what they were swapped out for as much. Right. Um, one of the things that I had for, for some of my notes for some of those songs, Tom um, Sawyer, like you said, it was no frills. I remember, you know, listening to it, you know, while I was doing work in the apartment today and hearing Neil's drumming on Tom Sawyer. You know, he always says that's one of his favorite songs to play live because how challenging it is. You know, I don't really listen to that song. I think it's one of his challenging songs because we've done it so many times, but his drumming is on point. Uh, that was the tour where, you know, you had South Park intro, um, which was really classic for the band. Like, I remember just, I mean, just laughing, like just seeing this live, you know, it was, it was awesome. Um, but I have it at the end of Tom Sawyer, they do a teaser. And I think they do a teaser later on in another track, but 
They do a teaser at the end of this. Is this Cygnus? Is this a Cygnus teaser they do at the end of Tom Sawyer? I think so. What else would it be? I I don't know. I I don't. I mean, because I, I only heard it in passing today out of the corner of my ear. I was like, I think that's a Cygnus teaser that they did. But I don't remember if they did that for our tour, like our show or not. Right. I love that teaser. I wish they would throw that teaser into every, at least, or definitely once every show. I think it's such a cool thing. Especially back before they had been playing it, like, unlike R40. Right. You know, it was kind of like, of course we're not going to play this song. (laughs) Um, Witch Hunt is, it's known, it's not one of my favorite Rush songs. However, this recording, specifically this experience when I was at this concert, is what made me realize this is a no-nonsense song. Um, I think what this track misses on moving pictures, you can fight me all day long. I, I'm sure a lot of you don't agree with this. I don't think that's a great recording. I don't, I don't, that recording is not, doesn't speak to me. It's, it doesn't make me emotional about anything. However, hearing it live and feeling those bass pedals in the heart of my chest, that <laughs> was a bit emotional. Um, I think what this song misses is deep, fat, moog, bass, Taurus, pedals, whatever. I, I, I'm mixing stuff up now. Those big bass pedals really help this song. Uh, each yeah. time they've played it since, I've enjoyed it. Um, but this experience specifically with the flames behind Alex at the beginning and uh, a really cool, a really different aesthetic than the rest of the show. Yeah, I'd agree. I think it, I think it takes, uh, it takes it, you know, to a new level from, from moving pictures. I, I like the moving pictures, but I think there's a couple songs on that album that are a little thinner mm-hmm. than um, than they they probably could have been if they were recorded, you know, ten years later or something. Um, and there's no excuse because look at the camera eye; it's right next to it. It's on the same album. Look, listen to the bass pedals during that song. Yeah, or how thick and chunky the sound is. Yeah, I mean, uh, Witch Hunt, was, that was my first experience seeing a live, you know, as you said, so I've enjoyed it every tour since, and um, I appreciate it. And it's surprising. It's it's held up on a lot of tours. You know, obviously you had yeah. Time Machine with, uh, you know, the, the moving pictures um, entirety thing, and I think it was, Witch Hunt was on another tour after that even, right? It might have even been on Clockwork. Yeah, it's I, been think, around. I think it has been played a few times since this one. Um, so at the end, I know you didn't watch the DVD recently, but on the DVD at the end is, um, Alex with the, his face painted green, right? Yeah. And his head spins around. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite lines ever is when you select 5.1, uh, surround sound stereo and you click it and he goes (laughs) 5.1. I just think that's a very (laughs) good. Alex Lifeson moment. It is very Alex, yeah. Um, but at the very end, you see him, his head spins, he makes a comment. His head spins, he makes a comment. His head spins, he goes, I'm I'm going to throw up. And it gets, gets funnier and funnier. And his head spins again. And then, boom, Jerry Stiller's face appears. <laughs> and he says uh, like something like, what is this? Or I don't know. It, that, that's the joke, is that he appears. And I thought, wait a minute. Hold on a second. You guys went and hired Jerry Stiller to do this again, just like you did on R30. However, you played A Passage to Bangkok in its entirety. 
And he you and you didn't think maybe having him appear behind you on the screens would be a comical moment? You know what I'm talking yeah. about, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I it's like he he was he was going nuts about Bangkok on the last tour and you hardly played it. And here you played it in its entirety and and he didn't do anything. I don't know. I think they missed an opportunity. But Bangkok gives us a really cool aesthetic because we get to see Getty with the Rickenbacker. And remember, at the time, Getty never played his Rickenbacker. Getty yeah, hadn't played that. his Rickenbacker since, uh, let me think, out live. He probably hadn't played it since Signals or something. Yeah, because, yeah, I, I bet that's correct. And um, I remember when he, he took that out for one track, everyone went crazy. Because he we hadn't he really wasn't playing a mixture of different bases like he was on Art Forty or even Clockwork Angels, right? And no, at the same time, on the one. other side of the stage, we get Alex in his big white uh, ES Gibson. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I like to see those. Yeah, I, you know, I think uh, seeing the Rickenbacker for me was like this rush nostalgia. It's like, oh my god, like there's the Rick, you know? What I mean, like there's this, uh-huh. you know, even though he's had his number one, you know, and that's created so many great tunes and it's been with them for so long just seeing like an older part of the band's history like physically you know i don't know if it was the same body or not it's, it's his original rick or not i don't know that but um just seeing him play rick and was was awesome and uh that was that was another tune that they have a teaser at the end and if there's anybody that listens to the show that knows what that is at the end of bangkok live i, I i'm pretty there's sure a it's teaser a teaser at the end I, there's something at the end that doesn't sound like Bangkok to me. And, uh, you know, I don't know if it's one of these, like, original Rush tunes from, you know, before, you know, the first album or something, you know. Huh. Um, so if somebody can figure that out and let you know, I would be I'd be interested. Maybe I'm just... Yeah, hearing. I'm surprised I didn't pick that up. Maybe I was distracted at that moment or something, but or I don't know what but, it is. I don't know. Yeah, maybe I'm just maybe I'm just wrong. You're, you're humble correspondent. <laughs> <To be> humble. <laughs> I'm um, humble for a reason. Yeah. So on this, um, what was the order of the of the uh, the encore? The encore went what? one little victory, a passage, a passage to Bangkok, Y Y Z. Yeah, yeah. So you know, one little victory. You know, it was for me at the time. It was cool because you know, being the Rio fan. You know, I thought it was cool to see that live. Um, Passage of Bangkok was great because for me, it was more like this sense of like, oh my God, they never played this song, uh, which was basically, you know, basically derived from uh, Jerry Stiller telling me that they never play it live. Uh, and then having YYZ close out the show was, I remember when they played it live, it was this feeling of, I had forgotten about it. Like during the whole show, I'm like, I want to hear YYZ. And I totally forgotten about it, and then suddenly that was the last song. They started playing it. I was like, "Oh my god, right? Why would I do this? Is this is awesome?" And uh, you know, it wasn't Rio. Like, it, it, you know, I don't think they'll ever be able to to get that back. But um, <laughs> great, great song to end the, the tour. I thought something I forgot about was we're talking about Ghost of a Chance. I think one of the most magical moments on this tour is the last chord of Ghost of a Chance. And the camera zooms into Alex, and I remember hearing it live and thinking that was a really cool sound when he slowly goes way, way over to the bridge and picks, he does like an upstroke real slow across the strings, and it's a beautiful kind of like arpeggiation of the chord. 
You know what moment I'm talking about? I don't remember that too well. Oh, that but... moment stood out to me big time. I know you're all worried about teasers and shit, but... <laughs> well, you know, that's why you got guests on. Everybody looks at different things, right? <laughs> um, You know what's really weird to me about this? Again, kind of like the branding of Snakes and Arrows is like... I've always thought that red kit was my favorite, was the nicest looking. It was my favorite Neil of Neil's kits that he's had. However, I never, I didn't understand why it was red. Red had nothing to do with, not to say every kit had, what, what did the pink kit have to do with hold your fire? Right. I guess it doesn't necessarily need to match up, but we have the light purple cover on snakes and arrows, the red drum kit, uh, Snakes and Arrows Live has the yellow sign on it, the road sign. When you open it, the cover, it's all red-themed. Um, the back has that, like, snakeskin kind of look to it. Everything's kind of like this concrete color. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like a beige. We have that logo with the... It's this, like a- the circle snake with the arrow in the middle. That's like a red and beige. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a very sepia tone on the back of the album. Um, yeah, I mean, aesthetically, like, it doesn't really make sense, the red, as far as, like, how it lines up with, you know, the album images and all that. Like, right. If I remember right, though, I think Neil got red on that tour because um, I think his first drum kit was red or something like that. Or, or when he was young, he always wanted a red kit. It, it was something. There's some nostalgic reason for him, and like that was like the color that like he always wanted in a drum kit or something. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why he put that candy apple red back. And you know, I think it's a beautiful kit. I'm not really big into like red and gold. It's kind of like a color combination. You know, I, I kind of like some of the other kits better. But I agree. I think it's a it's a gorgeous looking kit. I think it sounds like. It just really sounds good. Yes, um, and you know it's one of the boldest looking kits he's had. It, it's not very subtle. It's it, not a it's black not, or a gray or a light gray or you know what I mean. Right, but his his kits have all been kind of bold in the last few tours. I mean, they're either adorned with all the album covers, like all the little inlays, um, or they're. I mean, the the clockwork kit. I mean, the steampunk. There is so much going on. So nuts. much detail. Yep. You know. I mean, every little knob is, is, is a detail. The wood on the, 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 the kick drum, you know, it's got special inlays, I think. And mm-hmm. then they got the, the, like the halogen globe things on the corners on, on the, the spinning riser. Um, I think this is just a really bold, classic statement. You know, it, it's, it's, very, it's very slick. It's like, to me, it's like taking a sports car, you know, with the, the colors and, and, and the outlines and turning it into a drum kit. That's what it looks like to me. Totally. Yeah, it's it's a hot rod, right? <laughs> it's a Ferrari, it's a hot rod, it's a Porsche, you know, whatever you like. But, yeah, and I mean, just that, that bright red, and it's very sporty looking and classy. I always like these, I always like albums to have a sort of mascot. You know, somebody that you, a character that you can identify with it. Signals had, obviously, you, you I guess you could say the Dalmatian or the Hydrant. Uh, we've seen this over the years. The, we had the juggler on Hold Your Fire, the, the shirtless kid on Power Windows. With Snakes and Arrows, we had so many. 
we had logos. We have the street sign as a logo. We have the circle snake and the arrow as a logo. We have um, the baby and the carriage as a mascot. We have snake, the snake as a mascot or the baby from the live album. There, there are so many different things you can point to or, the, or this like big road that the road sign is in front of. So many of these things are, are representative of 2007 and the album that came with it. Like if you see a Rush Tour t-shirt and you just see that road, you know it's Snakes and Arrows. Oh, yeah. And you can see any of the images from the inside just about, you know, Snakes and Arrows. Like I think um, Hugh Signs did a great job on, on the inside of that. Oh, probably man. Better, probably better than any other one that I'm aware I of. totally agree. You know, I mean, you, he could have the, the windswept trees, you know, and, and you know what it's from. He could have, you know, the, the there's a very classic image. I don't know who the original artist was, but, you know, the guy working with a giant wrench, you know, and he's got it here with, with the angel wings coming out. I mean, you just see that. And it's or like the kid with the apple and the arrow, right? Yeah. I mean, so, um, yeah, I think it's, it, it's visually, it's a really, really good thing. I do want to go back one quick second here and, you know, we're talking about the album, you know, with the artwork and it's making me think about one thing I think was out of all the songs, I think this is the most egregious song, the most egregious error for not including a song from the album on tour. And, um, it's the last song for snakes and arrows. Like, why have we not seen that live? Yep. That was, I've said this before. That was a, one of the reasons you and I met, was because we were talking on like a forum about, and I, I remember seeing We Hold On as the last track of either the encore or the, the second set for you. And I remember thinking that would be a great song to end a show with. Yeah. And, and you I, thought I know, the same thing. And I know I've mentioned it on this, this show before, you know, on Rushcast before, but uh, I can't help but mention it again on The Snakes you know, live discussion that um, I think we hold on would be an amazing show closer. I think that's where I have it. And, uh, you know, I think it would, YYT is great. You know, I think if they would have dropped one little victory and did a passage, YYZ, we hold on. I think that would just, the you know, that's the only tweak I would have had for this, this, this tour, you know, it was just a great tour. And I think that would have been the icing on the cake for me. But, but for me, I think something they did right with this is putting is putting it at the end of Snakes and Arrows and also giving it that ending that it has. I think every album should end like that. Every well, album should end as strongly yeah. as Snakes and Arrows does. Yeah. And I it, think it is. Oh, go on. No, I wasn't. Go ahead. I was just going to say, like, as far as, as the album goes, you know, for, for tours, I don't know. I mean, do you think that they represented... Do you think Clockwork is – I'm trying to think how I should say this because I know we both love Snakes, but do you think Clockwork held up live as good as Snakes has? You mean during the tour, like in the moment hearing the song or like now looking back at it in the past? As... I, I don't really want to look at it, but I mean like as far as like how they, they, they brought the material across. Do you, do you think they integrated – the snake songs better into the sets than clockwork. Oh, um, I wouldn't say that specifically. I think both of them are, I mean, they're both done in different ways. Like the clockwork material had the string ensemble. It had the steam, it had the whole aesthetic of the whole concert working in their favor. 
right? It had the steam, the whole stage was steampunk. Everything shot steam out of it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, yeah. um, and that really assisted those songs just from the, don't you think from like the, uh, I want to say the listener, the, uh, the audience, the, the concert goers point of point of view, you know, you as a consumer, you're like, oh, every, all of your senses are pointing towards the song being successful. Uh, I think the aesthetic on Clockwork was like out of this world and, and really helped those songs flourish. You know, I don't think Wish Them Well is a strong song. I don't think it's the best thing they've ever written. I don't think it deserved to be played live. However, it worked somehow because it had all those things going for it. Whereas on Snakes... All you have is rotisserie chicken working for you, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know what that's how that's supposed to make your song better. Aside from the bass tone will be slightly tastier, and um, so the fact that I think the new material on Snakes and the new material on Clockwork was represented equally as well says a lot for Snakes and Arrows material. What for about sure. for you? As far as what point to that, like the fact of... I'm just throwing um, your question back at you. Do you think those songs on Clockwork were, were better or worse live than these snakes were? I, You know, it's. I was just thinking about that, you know, after I asked it to you and trying to process my own question for myself. And <laughs> I, I think that, you know, snakes... I think Clockwork's had a more cohesive kind of, you know, output. You know, you're watching... Clockworks, uh, Clockwork Angels, and it's got the it's got the visual aesthetic. It's got the theme behind the album. You know, it's kind of like a, a thematic album in a sense, um, a concept album. And Snakes didn't really have that. I know if you read Neil's books, a lot of the Snakes material, you know, comes from his travels and and his own inner processings of things like religion and all that. Um, but it doesn't have that cohesiveness the way Clockwork does. Uh, I think I think Snakes works better for standalone songs, kind of put into a, a good show, like a good set list. Um, I don't think all of Clockwork's songs integrate as, as easily. You know what I'm saying? Um, watching R40 Anarchist as an opener was very interesting for me. Very, I thought it was very cool. I thought it was a really great tune. Um, but you know, putting in uh, Oh God! What's that? Um, the records, you know, throwing in the records into R forty. I was just like, I don't know if this works outside See, the concept of clockwork. You're you're backing up my argument that um, the aesthetic of the rest of the concert was assisting those songs, and 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 I've always said that I I don't want to hear the Garden live again ever. I don't want to hear if they were going to tour for twenty more years. I don't want to hear it because I don't think it would be a special. I think that song worked as a closer. Not to say it's a bad song in any way, but it the fact that it closed out that that collection of chapters in a story, literally in a story, um, on the album, obviously, but also that chunk of that concert. It was all this new material, and then the garden, and then subdivisions or whatever came after it, and then back into old school rush. It was a closing of the book. So if on yep. R forty they were just like. Hey, we're going to play Losing It, and then we're going to play Tom Sawyer. Then we're going to play The Garden. Oh, and now we're back into Spirit of Radio. Like that's It's not going to work for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Agreed. Yeah, I, I think that's the one thing about Snakes. And I know a lot of 
I think a lot of your fans, you know, particularly the older ones, I think they appreciate Snake. I don't know if I feel the love for Snake as much as, you know, um, people like you and I who grew up with it in that slot for us, like where it fits into a catalog of, of Learning Rush. Um, but man, I mean, it's such a great tune, uh, series of tunes and, and great presentation live. I mean, it's, I, I'm stoked that that was my first opportunity. You know, more than Time Machine, I, I'm glad that my first opportunity came on uh, to see them live as a support of a, an album. You know, not, not a retrospective or not a collection. So I'm really thankful for that. Ted, that's a great way to close the episode, man. That was well said. Yeah. Hey, you know, we're going to have a few by the end of the episode, right? An hour later. I, uh, I feel you. I, I can I can see right through you. are trying to bogart the uh, Clockwork Angels episode, but I ain't letting that happen. <laughs> I'm shutting that down. <laughs> no, man. Clockwork, it was awesome. It's, it's you know, one of my favorite albums. I mean, there's, there's very few albums that I don't love. Um, there's a lot of great moments on that album, and... Wait a minute. Uh, is there? I know that was just a saying, but is there one or two albums you could tell me right now that you don't love? I didn't know you were able to kind of narrow it down that clearly. I don't love. I love them all, but there's. I'm trying to think if there's one that I like. I don't know. I don't know if I love Presto. I'm with you. I'm with you there. Yeah, I, I like Presto an awful lot. There's some really good tunes on there. That might be the only one. Uh, I like. Uh, Fly by Night, and I like, well, self self titled. Probably don't love love that one. I mean, it's great tunes on all of those uh, for sure. And I probably love Presto more than I love uh, the self titled. But um, yeah. yeah. All right, uh, guys. Chad Witko, Rush album hater. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Chad. Yeah, you got it, man. <laughs> and uh, I'll make sure that I get get you some correspondences from the field. Yeah, right, right, right. Okay. You're like, you call in, you're like, yo, Jay, I just remembered this other album that I despise. <laughs> yeah, that's my new that's my new legacy, is to have everybody hate me. The, the trick is to tell everyone that you hate every Rush album at the end of the episode. So they, if you say it at the beginning, they won't listen to what you have to say. <laughs> right, you got to get into when it's fresh. That's right. All right, Chad, thanks so much, man. Yeah, thanks a lot, Jay. Thanks for having me on. It's a special episode to be part of. Thank you guys all for listening. I hope you enjoy it. You enjoyed it. And if you don't love Snakes and Arrows Live, or especially Snakes and Arrows itself, please give it another shot. If you need moral assistance, correspondent Chad and I would be glad to help you. If you're look, if you love Presto and you don't want to love it as much, Chad and I will also help you with that. Uh, guys, I genuinely, genuinely hope you enjoy this last game of the World Series tonight, Sunday night. Go Indians.